This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Welcome once again to Evidence for Faith, the official voice of Ratio Christi. This is the show where we help Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I believe Kirk is there. Kirk, we're not hearing you. Uh, my mic wasn't on. You got me now? Uh, yes. Well, Can you hear me please, now? <laughs> please punish John for us. Oh, that was my fault. My mic was turned off. Ah, you had control of the switch? We have new microphones here, and they have on-off switches on them, and I was turned off. I want a new microphone. (laughs) Oh, I do have a new microphone. Never mind. See, the old microphones didn't have a switch on them, so I didn't have to worry about that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There was, like, no participation needed. Right. Well, we also have two other guests in the remote studio, so... I'm Kevin Harrell. And I am Jinsu Kim. And Jinsu Kim is a new voice to our listeners. Jinsu is the vice president of the Ratio Christi Stockton College Club or chapter. Yay! <laughs> oh, newly wow. promoted from secretary. secretary or something like that. Something. So Jinsu is a senior, I believe, right? Yes. Okay, and you're major? Philosophy and religion. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right, I like that. And what are you going to do with that? I'm actually planning on eventually going to seminary school, getting my PhD at some point in philosophy, and becoming a chaplain in the military. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Oh, we just had a chaplain in the military here the other day. Really? Do you know who that is? No. And well. And well. Hernandez. Oh, I, I think I heard uh, the podcast with him. Ah, great. Yes. Wonderful. So that's wonderful. That's exciting. And Jinsu has also done the certificate program through Biola, so he's had a lot of lectures on apologetics. I just have to fill out the tests, and that should be good. Oh, good. Yeah, you get credit for that. Do you know what seminary you're going to apply to? Or? Um, I'm, I'm looking at uh, a couple. Uh, Princeton Theologic Seminary. Mm-hmm. Westminster is another one I'm looking oh, at. Great. And uh, Assemblies of God Theologic Seminary is another one. So great. those are the one, top ones on my list. Wonderful. Well, that's exciting. All right, gentlemen, let us jump into things we need to get started with our quote of the week. This has been provided by Apologetics 315, and it's a quote from John Elder on archaeology and the Bible. And being as I left my reading glasses somewhere, we'll see if I can read this tiny, tiny print. It says, It is not too much to say that it was the rise of the science of archaeology that broke the deadlock between historians and the Orthodox Christian. Little by little, one city after another, one civilization after another, one culture after another, whose memories were enshrined only in the Bible, were restored to their proper places in ancient history by the studies of archaeologists. Contemporary records of biblical events have been unearthed, and the uniqueness of biblical revelation has been emphasized by contrast and comparison to newly discovered religions of ancient peoples. Nowhere has archaeological discovery refuted the Bible as history. 
And that is from archaeologist John Elder. And it's amazing when you say something online, live on the air, amazingly, things appear like glasses appear in your hand. That's, that's incredible power. This microphone has great power. Did you just make all that up since you couldn't see the print? <laughs> I did. That was right off the top of my head. That was very it good. Just like an archaeologist, didn't it? Yeah. I'll tell you. I, 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 I should go into acting. Impromptu drama. That's what I need to do. <laughs> How are you with charades? <laughs> we are going to jump in and try not to talk over the top of you because you are in the real radio station and we're just in the remote confines of distant Hamiltonia. <laughs> the topic today is going to be the doctrine of the incarnation. So for our non-Christian listeners or Christian listeners who are not up on big fancy uh, theological terms, anybody want to... Take a crack at what the incarnation is. Mm. I know, I know. The incarnation is God becoming human. The incarnation is God becoming human. Perfect. There you go. All right. So let's back up a little bit. We're going to set the stage because I guess it was about three or four radio shows ago we talked about the doctrine of original sin. So let's remind people about what that meant. The doctrine of original sin is basically the idea that we, as a collective body, we as human beings, rejected God. So, in the Garden of Eden, there had been no hunger, no greed, no fear, no pain. It was a paradise. And we learn from that, that, you know, God, when you're in his presence, you don't lack anything. Right? You have everything you need because he is the source of everything good. He's the source of the universe. He's the source of life. He's the source even of our own consciousness, our minds, our souls. He's also, according to scripture, the source of all pleasures. So God is the source of every good thing. And after Adam and Eve sinned, it created a rift between us so that you know, basically, we were kicked out of the garden, but God also distanced himself in a very real sense, right? I mean, he is not here walking among us. We don't get to, hey, you know, I'm going to go out in the back of my house where I have a little garden and I'm going to walk around with God, right? He, that is not an option for us anymore. So we have been separated from God. So I think without having to redo everything that we learned in the last podcast will just basically say that what this amounts to is a feeling of separation from God. We have a feeling of shame. Uh, we recognize guilt in ourselves. So there's a problem. We, we have an internal struggle going on, and we recognize this. Now, secu the secular world wants to tell you that's false, right? You don't have any actual guilt. You need to ignore that suppress that and stop suppressing your desires to do evil. Okay, that is their solution. Don't suppress your evil desires. Those are the real you. You should be real. You should be yourself and do whatever your heart tells you to do. Okay? In fact, they're considered not even to be evil. They're just a natural human expression of your needs. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. They're, how could they be evil? They are just what... You are, right? They're, they're just 
Which you've evolved, allegedly That's evolved right. into. Yeah. yeah, because you are um, nothing more than a, a, a animal. advanced animal, right? May, may I say something about that? No, you may not. This is a radio show. We don't allow talking here. Oh, man. Oh, man. But it's that we have a video camera, and so you can mime it. Okay. Oh, right. man, Kevin, you're tough. Keith, you're tough. I, I am. I'm tough, aren't I? Yes. But you go for it. You were so, so being a mechanical, uh, I guess, beast, just being someone that is a creature, actually um, defeats the idea of morality in and of itself. Because whenever you add uh, a moral condition to any adjective, you can no longer use that for any animal. For example, a lion that kills a gazelle, you can't accuse him of murdering. Or a falcon that takes a fish from a bear, you can't accuse that falcon of stealing. So that in and of itself removes the idea of morality. That's right. So, so when the secular world says you're nothing but an animal, then morals are right out the window, right? So is moral freedom, moral choice, even free will itself, right? You are just the product of the atoms and molecules and electrical signals in your brain. It's like a domino effect. There's nothing you can do about it. You are the way you are, and you should embrace it. So see, their solution is... Stop suppressing those desires, right, the quote-unquote real you. Now, the funny thing is it's wrong to suppress those. In fact, it's actually psychologically damaging, but it's okay to suppress guilt. Well, all right, that sounds strange. Why is that? Oh, because guilt isn't real, right? You're not actually guilty of anything, right, because, again, you're an animal. Therefore, just like you said, there aren't any morals, so you're not guilty of anything. There's no lawgiver. You haven't transgressed anything. So their answer for our problem is much different than what the answer is from a Christian viewpoint. Well, that is until you act on your natural desires to take away someone else's 401k. Yeah. And then suddenly <laughs> it's not okay naturally to do that. That's right. That's right. All of a sudden it matters to be moral. <laughs> Or if you have examples like Newtown, Connecticut, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, you know, right and wrong does exist after all. Yep. The, yeah, that they have that interesting tension, and they don't want to say, right? You didn't hear a lot of people condemning this kid as being a moral monster. Or no, you didn't. Actually, there were a lot of excuses as to what happened. You know, it was the gun's fault. It was his mother's fault. It was society's fault. It was this fault. It was that fault. But right. I actually yeah, there's no personal moral blame to be assessed because if you do that, then that means someone else could do the same to you. So we have this kind of a secret bargain going on in the secular world. That is. If you don't, I won't attack you for what you do wrong as long as you don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. Right. So can't we all get along that way? Can't we all just get along? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. It's like the kids who smoke behind the schoolroom, right, behind the schoolhouse. I'm not going to tell on you if you don't tell on me. Well, that is, once again, like C.S. Lewis says, until you butt in front of me in line in Walmart, then suddenly I want morality. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's did exactly C. right. Did C.S. Lewis know about Walmart? <laughs> I think that was a little after his time, wasn't it? I, it could it could have been. I, I don't know. Walmart, although Walmart's looking pretty old these days, so maybe it was back in the 60s. <laughs> All right, so, so we rejected God. That's a... Uh, Idea number one. But the truth remains God still accepted us. 
Okay, he didn't reject us. He had to distance himself from us because we were essentially, you know, unclean. We were no longer pure as he is. So there is that epistemic distance between us and God, but he still accepted us. He did not entirely reject us. And a couple things we can point out. One is that in Genesis 6-6, and I didn't write out the verse, but if you want to look it up, Genesis 6-6, you see that God felt grief and sadness over what people did. Could you kind of compare this to a parent who has, like, for instance, a child that goes out and murders somebody? That parent is going to feel, you know, grief and sadness at what their child has done, and yet they still accept him as their child. Absolutely. That's right. So, in spite of our sin, God still loves us. So, he created us. He knew this was going to happen. Nothing catches God by surprise. So, you know, and it's just like a parent who's got a wayward child, and you tell them something, please don't do this, even though in your heart you know they are going to do it. But you have a duty. You do the right thing, even if somebody else doesn't do the right thing. So he warns us, don't do this. We do it. We fail. We fall. And uh, But he knew it was going to happen, and he still loves us. And he, the exciting thing is he wants to maintain a relationship with us, right? He still reaches out to us. He still gives us his Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, to turn us towards him. But the, the big issue is uh, sin, right? Sin is the problem. Sin is what separates us. Uh, sin causes death. So he's telling us, you know, choose life, right? I set before you life and death. Choose life, right? So it, uh, ultimately he leaves it up to us. It's not like he wanted just more angels, right? I get the picture from Scripture that angels will, other than... Uh, maybe Satan. Uh, angels don't seem to have a choice in things. They seem to do what they're told. They're like the robot. And a lot of people think, well, why didn't God make us like that, right? Why, why did God give us free will? And that's my answer. My answer is he's got plenty of robots already. He's got plenty of angels, right? If you, you know, he can, he can, he's done that. Been there, done that. Got lots of angels. Wants something different, something better, you know, a, a creature that is like him, that is able to choose freely to obey or disobey, but to also love freely. So, and also someone that has knowledge, a, a deeper knowledge of him, that has knowledge of who he really is. Well, if you're just joining us, let us uh, remind you that you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. I'm Kevin Harold. And I am Jin Su Kim. And uh, we are talking about the idea of the incarnation, what God did to repair the damage. So let's jump to that. He still wants us, and we still need him, because he is, as I said, the source of all life, all goodness, all holiness. And so, you know, we need to reach out to him. Keith, I think you need to feed your cat. <laughs> oh, you can hear that. <laughs> I can hear him meowing in the background there. Yeah. Well, that's our spoiled cat. That's actually my son's cat. Uh, I think I've mentioned on air that my son went to Afghanistan. He's there for nine months, so we're babysitting his cat. 
And the cat used to accept the basement because we, when we first brought him home, we put him in there to keep him separate from our upstairs cat. <laughs> and he liked the basement and he was fine there. But as we let him acclimatize himself to upstairs, now he doesn't want the basement anymore. The basement is not big enough. It's not good enough. It's not where people are. So, um, so you could say the cat is exercising his free will in wanting to be upstairs instead of downstairs. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think he's more like an angel. He, <laughs> actually, he's like a fallen animal. You know, he just automatically follows his instinct, and his instinct is to be where he'd love to be right here on the table, mewing into the microphone. Well, that would be cool. You think so? Another guest star. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know about that. We we need a sound effect of a cat about now. That was not a sound effect. I tried. That doesn't count. Was that John or was that you? No, that was me. Okay. All right. Just just checking. <laughs> All right. So let's see. Um, so we're up to the part about how God accepts the unacceptable. Right. He accepts us even though we don't deserve it. So he he doesn't need anything, but he still wants us. Yeah, it's um the original sin thing, the concupiscence, makes us want... Oh, now he's using... Uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the innate sin that we are all born with uh, makes us want to do bad things. Um, if we say... I guess if I punched my colleague in the face and he forgave me and then I proceeded to do it again, then it would be very difficult to um, accept someone. Uh, however, even though it's so un- difficult to accept someone like me whose natural inclination is to continue to do the wrong thing, uh, my colleague still accepts me, or at least if he was God, he would accept me. Okay. So that's the... Uh, yeah, that's the idea. That's That's the idea. So... Uh, we're broken, we're fallen, but God has a solution for us. He still wants us, and he's able to fix us. How did he do it? Well, God entered our world to cancel the curse of sin and death. I am trying to pull up a verse here. It's John 1.14, but I'll, I'll give a couple of verses to our listeners. They can look them up later. John 1.14, Hebrews 2.14, and Ephesians 1.9. Well, you've got a a Bible, Kevin, so why don't you just look up John 1.14 real quick. So even though we gave Satan the power of death over us by essentially we, by obeying Satan instead of obeying God, we basically turned the leadership of the world, the leadership of the universe over to Satan. And that gave him the power of death over us. So God is going to, or God made that power uh, powerless. He made, he took away the power of death. We just need to accept that and uh, essentially activate it in our lives. So, did you find that? Yes. John one fourteen says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Excellent. So let me give a summary then, a a kind of a basic summary of the doctrine of the Incarnation. And this is taken from Josh McDowell's book, The Unshakable Truth. And it goes this way. We believe the truth, as Christians, we believe the truth of the Incarnation, okay, God becoming human, in which God accepted us without condition and sent Jesus Christ 
born of the Virgin Mary, to redeem us and restore us to a relationship with him. So that's the basic doctrine that we're talking about today. Did you hear that droid? The droid? <laughs> Did you hear it? Hey, I'm chuckling. I didn't hear anything. Oh, good. Okay. All right. Great. Because that was the cat's droid phone. <laughs> yeah. He is such a troublemaker. No, actually, I don't know. And maybe somebody, one of our listeners who knows about Motorola Razor phones, you can put it on silent or on vibrate, and it will still make noise. So I don't know what it is about it, but you can, there, somehow it's overridden, even though you manually change it. I have to actually shut the phone off if I want it to be completely silent. So, which means then I can't look up verses on the Bible on my uh, Bible app. Maybe you should move to an iPhone. I don't know. Don't say that. <laughs> All right. So, so what do we have then? Let's jump into the evidence that Jesus is God. Okay, the evidence that God incarnated himself in the body of Jesus Christ. So, there's four basic categories of evidence. And due to the interest of time and due to the fact that we have covered this in past shows, so you can look up the verses for deity of Christ. Oh, yeah, there's four basic evidences, and the first one being the Old Testament prophecies of the coming incarnation. The second one is Jesus' claims of deity. The third one is apostolic teaching. And the interesting one, the one I really enjoyed, was rational argumentation. And that's the one we're going to go into today. But let's just briefly cover the other three uh, that, we're, that we'll not be going in-depth in today. So we've got a, a bunch of different, essentially, witnesses. One is the Old Testament prophecies, okay? The idea of the Old Testament prophecies is that if they are true, then Christ kind of claims deity because these most of these prophecies happened uh, many centuries before Christ was even born. So, um, so they would be like forward-looking, saying, this is the one who would come. And then when the one came, it was present-looking in this because Jesus was doing what? Uh, Basically doing, fulfilling the prophecies on the past. Not only fulfilling it, but saying he was fulfilling it. Oh. Claiming his deity. I am the fulfillment of what those Old Testament prophecies were. Here I am. It says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I am right here, right now. Right. And, and, and a lot of the prophecies said that it was going to be God who would be coming. Right. So these Old Testament prophecies said God would save us. God would come to us. Uh, so, so this is a, a prior. You know, remember we're thinking if you're the skeptic, if if you're the Unitarian or the Jehovah's Witness or something, uh, you're saying that Jesus wasn't God. So, as evidence that he is God, before he even came, there were prophecies saying God would come to the earth. Right. God was going to save us. He would come himself. And do it himself. And really, then the Pharisees knew what you were saying. Not just now with the different groups, divergent groups from Christianity, but back then the Pharisees knew the Old Testament prophecies. And when Christ came on the scene and he says, I am he, you know, that, oh, that sounds very nice grammatically. But no, what Christ was doing is says, I am he, I'm fulfilling the prophecy from Isaiah of God. 
That's and right. the Pharisees were like, oh, no, you didn't. And they picked up stones because they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Actually, right. Isaiah 43, verse 10, where God is saying to his servant Israel, you must recognize I am he. So this is a, a really significant point, and, it, and it's, it is the point that Jesus did claim deity, right? So Jesus claimed that he was God. He said, I am from heaven. You are from earth. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Okay, so he forever put the stamp that this is an essential doctrine of Christianity. If you didn't sign up for the doctrine of Jesus Christ, then you didn't sign up for Christianity because that's what it means. Yes, So I, you know, I can see that somebody who's new as a Christian, who's maybe accepting Christ into his heart, as a Christian at the beginning, may not realize the deity of Christ, but he has to realize it, you know, right away. This has got to be an early teaching. This is an essential doctrine. Jesus Christ uh, is God. And then we have throughout the New Testament, we've got the apostolic teaching. So we have the disciples of Jesus Christ telling us very specifically Jesus Christ is God himself. And now you could add to that the later disciples, you know, uh, the anti-Nicene fathers, you could add, they taught about, and they coined the term, the Trinity. They talked about one and three, three and one, long before the Council of Nicaea that you read about in Dan Brown's novels, you know, the evil Council of Nicaea that uh, just uh, made up the idea that Jesus was deity, supposedly. Well, historically, in reality, we know that there's a continuous chain of evidence, Right. It's a continuous handed down from disciple to disciple to disciple until the Council of Nicaea. There never was any doubt that the disciples believed that Jesus was God. So what we're going to get into, though, is the rational argument. Now, I find this uh, very interesting because the implications of having such a, a rational basis is interesting because uh, finding yourself to want to believe in a theistic worldview in and of itself is only par- a partial battle. Uh, validating Christ not only validates the spirituality, but also gives you an intellectual permission if you already believe. And uh, the ration- we, there's so many rational arguments for Christ's deity. So intellect- intellectual permission, I like that phrase you just said. I actually Jim, got sir. that from William Lane Craig, so I'm not going okay. to claim it. But, <laughs> but in, in this instance... Uh, we're, we're going to go into the rational argument of C.S. Lewis uh, talked about it, of Lord, liar, or lunatic. But the intellectual argument would be really valuable in what way? Well, for the, for the non-believer, it can really help because you actually uh, remove a lot of circular arguments as well as arguments in which they're not going to keep any of your basis in the first place. A circular argument would be what, uh, if I were to say, um, I believe in God because the Bible says so, but then why do I believe in the Bible? And I say, because God says so. This is a circular argument, and most non-believers wouldn't accept either of those premises. And rightly so. And rightly so. But also, intellectual permission, I think, also goes helps us in ourself. Yes. And uh, when we have doubts, and I believe Kirk and I, we did a broadcast once together on doubt as a Christian and how these intellectual arguments helps to dispel some of those art. Do you remember that one, Kirk? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, the the thing that I like about Christianity is it's not like a lot of other religions where some religious leader comes out of the woodwork and he says, you know, look, God spoke to me and this is what he told me and you have to accept this as the truth just because I'm saying it is. It, it's Christianity has history and historical events and historical people and rational evidence to support it other than just someone's imagination making it up. Well, right, that's right. There's, there's no uh, doctrine of abrogation like they have in Islam where you can just change from the old doctrine you didn't like to a new one. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think of the example of, you know, Buddha sitting under a tree, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, now I understand what the truth is. You know, Christianity is not like that at all. No, we, we have like a litmus test of history and intellectual reasoning, uh, logic that go to prove the validity of what we believe. Right. But going back to this uh, Lord liar or lunatic, um, in case uh, maybe some of our listeners aren't familiar, uh, C.S. Lewis, I believe in his book Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity. Yes, a great book. Uh, if you're interested in these things, and I hope you are, and you don't have that book, you are really robbing yourself. But he talked about Lord, liar, or lunatic. And the word there, or, is in there on purpose because it's like you have to intellectually choose between one of these three. You don't get them all. It's not eBay. You don't get to pick everything. You have to choose between three of these alternatives. And in the time we have remaining, we're going to go into that. If you're wondering why I'm talking a little bit here, Keith is having a coughing crisis. So <laughs> we have the choir of the cat and Keith's coughing today. But Keith is coming back. I, I we think have lots he, of sound uh, effects today. <laughs> you said something, Kurt? No, we have sorry. lots of sound effects operating today. <laughs> yeah, realistic ones too. Not made up cat cat noises. Yeah, they sound really good. Your your cat impression's getting really good, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, he does that with his left nostril. <laughs> All right, so let's try see if I can have one of these guys read the quote from C. S. Lewis's book. Sure. Uh I will just a great moral teacher. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said that sort of thing, uh, things Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would rather either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was, is, and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open for us, and he did not intend to. Right, so we have to view... What Jesus is saying here, and so we, Jesus is making his claims, and we have to accept them as either what? Either he is a liar, or he's crazy, or we have to surely accept him as Lord. Right, so either his claims are true or false, but we cannot say he's just 
a great moral teacher. He certainly was a great moral teacher. But you can't say he's only a great moral teacher and nothing else. So I think that's what that claim was telling us. Because if Jesus' claims are false, then there's two options left. If Like a little uh, tree going down a logic tree at each point. Back in 300 years ago when I learned uh, computer <laughs> programming by this professor who had like 16 doctorates, he was confused. And But we learned those little decision trees. I bet you guys don't even do them anymore in, in computer class. Not in computer class. Okay, well, we have those in aviation. But if, if false, if Jesus claims are false, then either he knew they were false or he did not know they were false. And if he knew they were false, fellas, that means he was what? A liar. A liar. A a big liar, too, because he made quite huge claims of morality. So if he knew, he was a liar. But if he did not know, then he was what? A A lunatic. A poached egg. Now, (laughs) he was a poached egg, right? A poached egg, right? Right. <laughs> that's from the uh, that's from the quote. You know, there's an ac- actually a website called the Poached Egg website. That's from oh, that quote. Really? Oh yeah, it's a very good apologetics website. I, I met the guy who does it. Oh wow! I think it's uh, Greg West. I think is the guy who does uh, the Poached Egg. That's a good good website. So the next question would be: Was Jesus a liar? We already talked about whether he knew it or not, but was Jesus a liar? Was he deliberately deceiving his followers? Because he would also be a hypocrite, for he taught others to be honest no matter what the cost. Right. And he would also be evil, for he told others to trust him for their eternal destiny. These things are not small potatoes. They are huge moral eternal implications that if Jesus was lying, wow, bazinga. Right, he wasn't just lying. I mean, he was a really evil liar. You know, telling people to trust him for their eternal salvation, telling people to pray to him and he would answer their prayers right you know this is uh this would be if he was a liar he was a really evil liar and and a, you know a big hypocrite right because he told people uh, be honest and tell the truth right there's no exception but he would also be foolish because he could have backed away from these lies that he made to save his own life I mean, where we're sitting, there is a fabulous picture on the wall of Jesus before Pilate. And it's really well done. And it really rings home the point that how far Jesus went with these claims. Literally, not just to the point of death, but can you say even worse than death? Torture, torture extreme death. torture is apparent there goes a certain point with your kids where they're not willing to keep going lying because the stakes are getting higher and higher. For me, they show me the the whip with the nails and the things that dig in your skin. They just show it to me. I would have been out of there. Right. So, no bamboo shoots under the fingernails for you, right? So he he would have been a hypocrite. He would have been evil. He would have been foolish. Right. So. Was Jesus a liar? I think when you look at these things, no. Right. He's not a liar. So, but again, you can't, you know, the objection is that, well, 
I don't accept Jesus as God. I accept him as a good moral teacher, right? So was he really a great moral teacher? You have to ask yourself that. Based on what we just said, you, st- you couldn't. Because if he, how could a great moral teacher teach you great moral things and then violate those great moral things? That's right. So we've got a great quote about the moral teacher. What uh, you know Was Jesus really a good moral teacher? And uh, the William Lincoln quote. You, would you like me to read it for you? Yeah, the one that says, right. uh, yeah. It was reserved for Christianity to present to the world an ideal which through all the changes of the 18th centuries have inspired the hearts of men with an impassioned love, has shown itself capable of acting on all ages, nations, temperaments, and conditions, has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive to its practice. The simple record of these three short years of active life have done more to regenerate and soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. Cool, great quote. So Jesus really was a great moral teacher. In fact, uh, you know, you'd have to say he was the best moral teacher that ever lived. We recently interviewed Dr. Fazrana on the radio program, and he told us that the way he came to Christ was by reading the Sermon on the Mount. You know, just by reading the Sermon on the Mount, he saw the incredible depth of wisdom and love that was there. It was the Creator talking to us about virtue, right? About what it meant to live the virtuous life. And it was a lot harder than anyone ever before has said. So Jesus really was a fabulous moral teacher, but that's the problem. How could he have been a fabulous moral teacher if he was a liar. I just uh, want to make a note about the name of Jesus and that no other name in all of history is as recognizable. And that's because no matter where you go in the world, his moral teachings are universally accepted as true. No, Yeah, you know, this is wonderful. It, it's true. Every other religion, they want a piece of Jesus, right? I mean, if you're a Hindu, Jesus is a avatar, right? He's an appearance of the God right the the one god he's an appearance to teach us and he uh, he happens to teach hinduism you know if you're islamic right jesus is a great prophet in fact a fabulously great prophet even better than muhammad he did miracles uh, you know even created a turned a, a clay pigeon i think into a, a live pigeon according to the quran uh, you know he did lots of really interesting Things. So he was an oh, and uh, born of a virgin, right? They accept that too. So everybody, every every religion, no, all all Muslims as far as I know, oh yeah, they believe that it's right in the Quran. So unless they're rejecting the Quran, the Quran says that Jesus was born of a virgin. Yeah, it is in there. Yeah. So Jesus really is looked to as the preeminent centerpiece of history. You know, so yeah, interesting. What other uh, religious uh, figure throughout history can you point to and say that he's accepted really in some form or another by almost every single religion? Right. That's right. And non-religious countries as well. That's right. Right. Yeah. Well, then the answer must be okay. So he didn't lie. He just didn't know that what he was saying wasn't true. Oh, that would mean he was something else then. Yeah. He was a post word. Obviously, as a lunatic, <laughs> he, he must have been crazy. Just saying, it was just a mistake, right? He he thought he was God, but he was mistaken. He really wasn't God. 
he just thought he was, like the guy who thinks he's a post egg or the guy who, you know, thinks he's a Napoleon. Napoleon. Yeah, you know, I mean, we have Ancora Hospital near us. You know, it's a, a nut house. So we, we keep what? Oh, I'm not supposed to say that? That was a little one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little politically incorrect, Keith. Hey, what? I have a very good friend who's from that nut house. He's a wonderful Christian man. Uh, his life totally changed. Oh, a nice awkward moment. <laughs> <laughs> I won't say his name. I hope he's one of the employees and not one of the inmates. <laughs> no, he was. He was actually one of the inmates. Really? Yes. Yes, he was. He's a wonderful, wonderful man of God. And you could trust him. You know, He'd give you the shirt off his back. Right. But, but one key thing about uh, struck me about this idea of believing you're Napoleon uh, that would strike against the postmodern thought. It, if if you believe something sincere enough, that makes it valid. And oh. you can, <laughs> that's right. I that's right. I could believe I'm Superman. Oh, that was Jesus's truth. See, oh, Jesus thought he was God, so that's his truth. Well, that works for him, right? Well, but well, I don't happen to think I'm God, so it doesn't work for me. Well, let's test that <laughs> theory, Keith. <laughs> the next time you fly on my airplane. I'll sincerely believe I'm Superman, and I won't start the engines and see if I can take you in the air. Would you want to fly on my airplane? As long as we stay firmly on the ground. (laughs) Oh, no, that's no fun in that. You're going to decide after we get up in the air. Oh, but Kevin, if you're Superman, you don't even need the airplane. That's right. Just fly me. Pick me up and fly me. Well, that would require me to hug Keith, and that's not going to (laughs) happen. So Jesus would have been very deranged, obviously, right? And uh, a nut burger. So poached egg. <laughs> there are people like this, right? There are schizophrenics. There are people yes, who are just yes. not in the real world, unfortunately. And uh, many times we have to lock them up. So, which apparently we have a trouble. We have trouble doing that these days. And sometimes they wind up shooting schools full of children. And bring, bringing great pain, not just to those who get victimized, but also the families of someone who has somebody that's suffering from schizophrenia. They go through great agony themselves. Absolutely. So are, we have extreme compassion for them, but it doesn't erase the fact that thinking you're something you're not is still invalid. Right, right. It's an escape from reality. It's nothing that's actually real. So is that... Jesus's record, guys, is uh, was Jesus? Did Jesus appear to be nuts? Well, no, not really, because um, from all the record and the evidence we have, Jesus was actually uh, not only incredibly uh, moral, but he was uh, profound. He's prolific. He, um, yep. he was smart. He right. was very composed. In fact, uh, I think a wise man once told me that he's actually never uh, spoke a fallacy. Ooh, that, would that be me? Yeah. Did you <laughs> yes, I just called you once. Uh, no, no man can ever usually go uh, one speech without speaking dozens of fallacies. Right. Yet he, Jesus, never once was recorded to speak a single logical fallacy. Right. So he was yeah. he, he was pretty intelligent. And you, yep. you still have the same problem as you had with the other example. If he's a lunatic, then how did he come up with the uh, sublime moral teaching of the Sermon on the Mount? Exactly. That's right. Yeah, some of the most profound words ever spoken by a human being. Or think about uh, the Lord's Prayer. I mean, how much has that meant to people around the world for centuries? You know, some of the most quoted, 
um, the most thought about, the most prayed about words ever spoken by a human being. So, and think about the impact that his words have had on other people, right? I mean, you know, uh, this is one thing if you're working with an atheist and uh, trying to witness to them, you can ask them, just challenge them, what about who do you know who, by adopting an atheist worldview, has become a better person, right? Or better moral person, or better psychologically, right? I mean, we could fill up stadiums full of people whose lives have been changed by the teaching of Jesus Christ, whose mental health has gotten better, who have uh, gotten off of addictions to drugs or, you know, evil lifestyles, prostitution or whatever, you know, anger problems. So Jesus isn't not, is not only not crazy, he helps crazy people get better. So, uh, so you know, he really, he really liberates people from, from bondage. Well, he helped all of us, right? Uh, he helped me. <laughs> I, I had a very serious anger problem before I was a, a Christian. Uh, I would had an extremely short fuse, and you know my brother and I would just pound each other all the time. We would just, you know, we were really vicious to each other. We took knives to each other one time. You know, I mean, uh, when we were like fifteen, sixteen years old. I think I think uh, maybe the div- divinity of Christ maybe even influenced you then too from killing each other, right? <laughs> What do you guys want to read? Jinsu, you do, you're doing a great job yeah, with reading. Yeah, psychologist Gary yeah, Collins. This is from a psychologist, so let's see what a, a psychologist has to say about Jesus' mental health. Okay, okay. Jesus was loving, but didn't let his compassion immobilize him. He didn't have a bloated ego, even though he was often surrounded by adoring crowds. He maintained balance despite an often demanding lifestyle. He always knew what he was doing and where he was going. He cared deeply about people, including women and children, who weren't seen as important back then. He was able to accept people while not merely winking at their sin. He responded to individuals based on where they were at and where they were uniquely needed. All in all, I just don't see signs that Jesus was suffering from any known mental illness. He was much healthier than anyone else I know, including me. There you go. Gary Collins. Absolutely. So let's try that trilemma again. Let's, let's think. Was Jesus Lord? Was Jesus a liar or a lunatic? All right. Was he a liar? No. We looked at that. He wasn't. Was he a lunatic? No. Very clearly, he was neither of those things. So the only answer that's left is Lord. Right? Rationally, he was and is the Christ, the Son of God, just as he claimed. And what do you mean by Lord? Maybe some of our listeners aren't familiar with that phraseology. Well, Lord, when the New Testament writers are using the word Lord, they're using it in a context in which the Old Testament was written in Greek. It was the Septuagint. That's what they were used to using. And the word Lord was used as a word, as a placeholder word, instead of the Tetragrammaton, or in the Old Testament, the name of God. So the Yahweh, um, that word, instead of writing it out, they use the word Lord. So when the, when the disciples are using the word, and you notice that it doesn't start. They don't, in the Gospels, they don't call him Lord, right? He's not called Lord until after he dies and is raised again, and they suddenly realize who this person really is. And they see him alive. Now they call him Lord. 
He is Yahweh. He is the creator of the universe. So that's what they're saying when they, <clears throat> when we call him Lord, that's what we're really saying. We're not just saying, you know, like, sir, you know, or um, captain, you know, or president, right? I'm calling him very divine God right. of the universe. That's right. So this is, so it's not the case. I'm sorry to all you Dan Brown fans out there. It is not the case that Jesus' deity was invented at the Council of Nicaea, right? That happened in the 4th century, and we, can, we have a solid track record all the way from the 1st century, uh, from both Christians and from secular, right? 2nd century secular writers recorded that Christians believed in the deity of Christ and that they worshipped Christ. We even have an archaeological site where there was a table dedicated, and it's chiseled into the stone. This is from the 2nd century. It says to the God Jesus Christ. So, was he a liar? No. Was he a lunatic? No. He is Lord, and you have to choose yourself what is the best explanation. Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. Kevin Harrell. And I'm Jinsu Kim. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com and join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,